Hello everyone. So it is me, the incredible rhyme animal hyping like a poet on a mic I show it, or as you know me, the northern correspondent of the Broken Horse podcast. And I return looking pale and wan like a man who has just done yoga because I've just done some yoga. And I'm back with part three of our technical clinic where we talk about various elements of the stroke and various drills and exercises that we can do to make our entire stroke profile a thing of seamless beauty. Now, before I go any further, in part two, I gave a shout out to Graham uh, from Tyne United Rowing Club, who made the very um, pointed quip that I seem to know a lot about technique, but never apply it to my own rowing, which is, I think, a fair comment. And I'd just like to give a shout out to Stephen Graham, the father of the inimitable Dan Graham, who while I was sweating my cobs off on the erg machine in a erg shed that could only be described as a greenhouse at this point in the year, he popped in to tell me that the reason why the World Series of Baseball and uh, all of these kind of things is called that is because it was sponsored by an American periodical called The World. It wasn't, as I thought, Americans being American and being very grandiose about being American, it was a sponsorship thing, in the same way that Le Tour was originally called Le Tour and the Yellow Jersey and all of those things came about because of the people who sponsored it in its early days. Now, this will hopefully be the last technical clinic that I do for a while. It should be the last one that you ever need because we've literally taken every element of the stroke and broken it down. Whether I have broken it down in an appropriate manner um, there have been some interesting messages from various Broken Oars listeners, including one by someone whose name will remain nameless, but just went ha 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 ha. Thanks, Dennis. So I said something in the last Aliens Guide to Rowing Well about it not really mattering what philosophy of rowing you have, as long as everybody in the boat, in the crew, in the squad, in the club buys into the same idea and I've been thinking about that a lot since then and I know that I tend to be viewed as the conciliatory one in the Broken Oars podcast um, Lewin tends to be the one who tells things like they are and I tend to think that well it's all live and let live it all comes out in the wash we're all you know people here who can have a chat and agree to disagree because we're grown adults and we're not governed by the algorithms and all of the rest of it. But since I've been thinking about that, I actually think that I was wrong to say that it doesn't matter what philosophy of rowing you buy into. And that it has been driven by looking back through my own experiences, looking back through the coaching I've been lucky enough to have. I've had a quick chat with a few of the people on Twitter. I'd just like to give a shout out to Mark Rusko. We had a, an interesting email back and forth on this subject. And I've come to the conclusion that I was wrong to say it doesn't matter what your philosophy of rowing is. I actually think that there is really only one way to row a blade, and that is skillfully and hard, using all of the things that I've identified in these series to, to move the boat. The lock in the water, the pressure on the pin, the right sequencing of the physical movements on the drive phase, the right sequencing of the physical movements on the recovery phase. And I think I'm going to stand by that, uh, which is pretty rare for me because I'm always happy to, you know, debate and come to a compromise. But 
I think that people can be taught to row badly by very well-qualified coaches and other people on the basis of, well, this works for us, this is our philosophy, this is what we do, when the actual physics and mechanics of it and the actual practice of it shows that pretty much what I've said in this Alien's Guide to Rowing Well is the right way to row a blade. Whether you pause at the back like St. Paul's, whether you have a sting and float style, whether you go full GB orthodoxy. If you actually look at the last three things that I've mentioned, bar the pause at the back, which is a deliberate sequencing tactic at low rates that vanishes at high rates. If you look at those three schools that I've mentioned, and then you look at practitioners of, the, of those three schools, whether it's Redgrave and his pomp, whether it's Andy Hodge and the, the four in the 2012 final, rowers past a certain point of being able to move the boat, if you do enough miles and you do enough purposeful practice, regardless of the stroke profile you think you are doing, you end up finding the most efficient way to move the boat. Rowing is a field sport. People talk about tennis being a field sport. It's not. They basically have carbon fiber bazookas in their hands now. It's about as much a field sport as boxing, in the sense that getting punched in the face is a feeling, but it's not necessarily a particularly subtle one. Rowing is a field sport in as much as we all know what a boat moving well feels like. We have all felt it at some stage, even if it is only for one stroke. And all of the technical language, and all of the technical drills, and all of the mileage, and all of the repetition, and all of those things that we do, we do to get us back to that feel state, that flow state, that being in the zone state where we are moving the boat the most efficient way possible. And the reality is that, as I've said in this series, a lot of what we have in coaching is what I call coaching mood music. It's what Lewin also calls coaching mood music. Oh, spin the hands, you know, sit at the back, you know, quick catches. These things literally mean nothing unless you have sat down as a club, as a squad, as a crew, as a boat with your coach and defined what they mean. And by defined what they mean, I don't necessarily just mean in a linguistic sense, I mean in the sense of the feel that you are going for, the feel in the boat that these things impart and give to your rowing. If you are just parroting things, then you are playing coaching mood music and you think you're doing something, you think that you're improving your outing or your session or your, your practice and rowing is a practice, like meditation is a practice or painting is a practice or playing a musical instrument is a practice. It is a practice and there are lots of people who can play three chords on the guitar and never get beyond that because they don't actually do the practice that allows them to become Joe Pass or Segovia or Django Reinhardt or Eddie Van Halen in my particular thing. We're talking about a field sport here. We're talking about a practice here. And if those coaching calls, if that coaching mood music is not very clearly defined and has very clear outcomes and very clear requirements, you're basically shouting something in the middle of an outing to make you go, oh, now's the time to shout something in the middle of an outing. We have the tricky S-bends. Let's shout about sitting at the back. 
Unless you've defined what it means, it means nothing. And that feeds back into the idea that it's okay to have different philosophies of rowing when the reality is that the basic mechanics in any school of rowing are exactly the same from school to school to school. The lock in the water, the pressure on the pin, the correct sequencing of the, of the body movements on the drive using those leverage elements, and then the correct sequencing of the bodily movements on the recovery coming forward for the next stroke. When you don't do that, you have terms that sound like they do something, but which actually don't. The idea of placing and pushing, where I've said, oh, it's fine if you're a place and push philosophy. And I shouldn't have said that, so that's on me, because the reality is that you haven't got time, even at 18 strokes a minute, you haven't got time to put the blade in the water and go, oh, oh, I'm feeling it load up. I'm feeling it load up and now I'm going to I'm going to squeeze through to the finish. If that's what you're doing, then spend your next 20 outings doing front end exercises so that you can feel that you can get your lock on the water as soon as the blade goes in, rather than funny arsing around with, oh I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it's a feel sport, but it's not that much it's not some kind of spiritual zen, you know, I'm aligning my chakras here. You've got a split second to get hold of the water, get the lock on, get the legs on, get the legs feeding into the back, driving hard against the pin and moving the boat. So the place and push thing is just wrong. It's a description that's used to trick people into doing the right thing and it can work, but if it leaves you believing that's how the catch works, then it's doing the wrong thing. It's what Mark, when we had our brief chat um, about this, said is the lies to children approach. Um, and the thing is, it tends to propagate things because when you then move from coaching to rowing, or rowing to coaching, and you repeat what you are told without understanding, then um, you are propagating those lies. And the thing is, if that's your belief, you can watch a video of yourself or your crew or your crewmates rowing and you will interpret it based upon incorrect ideas because those are your preconceptions about those things. If you look at really good rowers, and I'm not, you know, go and look at Pip, go and look at Lewin, okay? I'm not going to put myself in this, in this frame. If you look at really good rowers rowing, the very best people from the top down have load on their blades with an obvious bend before the blades are fully covered. And I've touched upon the fact that the blade winks into the, the water via a stimulus response incredibly quickly. But they are doing what Pete Holmes used to call the spring back. They are driving, they are timing their drive back and their entry to the point where as their blades are going in, the load is coming on. They are getting their lock on as quickly as possible. So the idea of fully burying the spoon before pushing and taking your load on just, just isn't going to work. And now that we have things like riggers that, uh, that you know, riggers and pins that give um, feedback, that give telemetry data about the, you know, the force that's being generated and the power curve that's being generated, the telemetry tells you how well you're doing it. If we don't have telemetry, we have to get out of the habit of saying it's okay to roll like this as long as we all do it together. Um, some of these ideas are dying out as older coaches re re retire um, and 
there are a lot of variants in rowing and there are a lot of coaches who follow ideas that were successful for them but we've now moved on from. I'm thinking in particular of a university crew that I know. Um, and that's they don't share a compound with us. So before Durham, you know, beat the shit out of me next time uh, I'm down at Turk, that's the reality of that. Um, higher up, there tends to be more continuity of ideas. Lower down, there tends to be more variation. Um, but I think looking back in retrospect, I think that the idea that whatever you do, all do it together, which I which I put out was wrong for me to put out and I think it forgives a lot and it possibly means that you won't get as much out of your rowing than if you actually embrace the realities of it. The doing it together thing doesn't give you much beyond synchronization but things like catch skill, um, catch skill can be learned. You know, go and do Russian catches. Just go and do outings of Russian catches. Oh, we didn't get to paddle. We didn't get to do a piece. We didn't get to go fast. No, but what you did is you did 90 minutes of taking the catch th three inches and then coming forward and taking the catch three inches and making sure that the connection was between your legs, the pin and the blade. Oh, but we didn't, yes. But now your body will have that in it. And the more you do it, the less you'll think about it. And the more your body will just go, this is what we do. We're at the front, we take the catch, in and on, in and on, in and on. A lot of rowers, some rowers don't, but a lot of rowers go, oh, we had a great outing. We had a great outing on Saturday. You know, that must have been because we did a really good session in the gym on Thursday. Rowing is an incremental improvement sport. Once you, once you get past the initial learning curve, it's an incremental improvement sport. If you had a good outing on Saturday, it's probably because for the last six months, you have been slowly developing and working on your fitness and your skills and your cohesion as a crew. It will not be down to any one outing. If you are rowing really badly and you look back, this is why keeping a training diary is so important. If you're rowing really bad and you look back and you can see, oh, bad outing, not a good outing, and you take out the, oh, you know, weather, crosswind, attacked by seals, you take all of that stuff out, you can see why it's on a downward curve. In the same reason you can see why it's on an upward curve. We are currently having really good outings at Tyne United in the men's squad. And the reality is not, it's not because since we came back in September, we've been beasting the training and did it and all of that kind of stuff it's because for the last six months without anyone really being aware of it we have been holding ourselves to a higher standard we have been working on technical drills as much as we have fitness we've been working on crew cohesion we've been working on what the calls meant and the reason we're having consistently good outings which means we'll probably have a shocker this weekend is because we have made incremental improvements that have stacked up over a long period of time and given us that. The reality is the Agecroft approach, you know, Dennis O'Neill, rowing is a simple sport that people complicate. You put the oar in the water, you push really hard, you take it out, you repeat. That's it. And we complicate it. We get lost in the technical minutiae instead of getting the big things right. And the reality is, as I've just said, and this is really important, and Lewin's probably going to laugh at me for it, but um, it's really important. Rowing is a feel sport, which is why I'm saying this again. 
And all of the technical language and all of the technical drills are designed to get us back to that feeling of a boat moving well that we all know. That's it. That's all they're there for. That is genuinely all they're there for. So that's my mere culpa. Um, and with that, we'll get on with the rest of the episode. We left part two at the finish, but not the finish of the technical clinic. So we've rode our blade through to the finish. And what we've done is we've rode our blade through as hard as we can. I think it's important to point out because if I don't, Dan Armstrong will beat the living crap out of me tomorrow for not mentioning it, that when we come through, we have this explosion with the leg drive that helps to create the momentum in the body, which we are then driving back against the pin as we add the draw in, which we were talking about last time as the logical sequence, the legs trigger the body to open at the right time. As the body opens, the draw comes through and we are drawing through flat and we are drawing through level. We are using the back muscles. We are not jerking with the arms. And Dan would probably like me to say, in fact, Dan would probably like me to do, not adding any more with the arms, not trying to add any more with the arms. We're not trying to jerk it through, we're not trying to flick it through, we're not trying to get a little bit more out with the arms. It's really important to have that strong linkage and what we're doing is we're drawing through with the back muscles, we're squeezing the shoulder blades together, we're using the, the arm as the linkage but we're using the large muscles in the back which are second only to the legs in their size to continue that draw through. We're not looking to add any more on, we're looking to continue the acceleration we've developed with the leg drive and the body opening. Okay, so we've rode through, we've sat back in a good strong position, we aren't sagging, we aren't collapsing, we're, even if we do it to try and make room for our tap down, we're keeping that idea of the small of our back being pushed out towards our tummy button. We've rode through to a strong position, our head is up, our shoulders are level, and we're just going to let the boat go. We're going to let the puddle leave the blade. The blade wants to come out at that point. It's been set up to come out at that point. And that's when we reach the point of the extraction. This is a really interesting bit of the stroke because we've just applied the brutality. We've just given it the big aggressive we're rowers, let's show off here, let's give it some welly, let's kick this boat down the course. And what we're looking for the ex with the extraction is a very quick, very subtle movement. And what we're doing is we're dropping the, ha the outside hand, we're hinging with the outside hand to lift the blade out. There is a vogue in rowing, especially in eights, that we like to hear the boomph, the boomph with the oar in the gate. Pete Holmes would tell you that is transmitting energy into the boat, it's bouncing it up and down and it's taking speed off no matter how fractional it's doing it. What he wanted us to do was he wanted us to look for a soft click so we wanted all of that aggression in the stroke and then we, when we came to the extraction we hinge we put the blade comes out with a lovely subtle movement, small movement from the elbow, fast and clean as the catch, and like the catch, it's vertical. We're not dragging it out, we're not washing it out, we're not trying to slip it out or flick it out. It comes out square 
and then we feather it and we look for a nice soft click. We don't look for the war drums of the head race season where everyone goes off the start and you hear the of the seats sliding back and forth, okay? Blade comes out before we feather. Feather too early, it's called sculling it out. Your blade will drag in the water. You, you can tell you're doing this if when you come out, you, if you're flicking it out, you'll see water flicking upwards. You should come out neatly and there's some ridiculous thing nowadays about there shouldn't be any puddles when you row. Your finish should be so clean that there are no puddles. We're going to get into cavitation and why that's absolute nonsense a little bit later on. But essentially, puddles are a measure of the amount of work that you're putting down. It's the amount that you've got hold of the water, the amount of pressure you've put on. You can see by the amount of water that builds up on the front of the blade. And when you come out square, you should have that beautiful counter swirl that shows that the blade is lifted out cleanly, you've feathered it, and then we've released the boat at its fastest point. And what we want to do at that point is let it run as far and as fast as possible between strokes. Smooth and quiet, no rattle at the swivel, we're not forcing the blade round, we're balanced on the lip of the gate, we're letting the hands flow away again. And so once we've done that, we feather. Now you feather by dropping the inside wrist, which in my case, because I'm a bowsider by temperament and nature, is my left hand. So if you imagine that I'm rowing like that and I've drawn through, I've got my nice chicken wings, I'm keeping it nice and high, and I just roll, drop the inside wrist. So you're just dropping the inside wrist and that will rotate the oar in the gate. Like the entry and the drive, extracting and feathering are a fast blended movement, but you can work on them. There are technical drills that you can do. You can do squaring and feathering exercises. You can do roll-ups to look at what your trigger point is for your square. You can do um, release exercises where you look at what your trigger point is for your feather. And that takes us back to the recovery. So we're back where we started. We've released the blade, we feathered it, we're sitting, we're nicely on the center line, our sack of potatoes is controlled, our shoulders are level, the boat is now running, we've released it at the maximum point of its acceleration. So we recover the blade first, then the body, from the backswing of the stroke. The recovery is like a, like a recoil, I guess you might call it, to get you ready for the next swing forward to take the next stroke. So you stay sitting back, you've recovered the blade, push the handle down, you tap down to, I was always taught, a fist width off the sax board. You shouldn't be carving into the side of the boat, you shouldn't be bouncing it off your thighs, you should be drawing up to a nice strong position and then just tapping down, push the handle down and away quickly and smoothly. There is a vogue I know which we've talked about a lot about the pause rowing thing if that's something that you do as part of your um, UT paddling rather than as a discrete exercise then that's fine that's entirely your choice. I was always taught that the hands come in and go out at the same speed. And that speed obviously changes as you go up through the rates, but what doesn't change is the ratio. So I always use my hands coming in and out as a cue point 
for what the rest of my ratio feels like. The hands come in and out, and when they're at a certain point, that triggers the next sequence of movement, which is the hinging from the hips. So my hands have come in, I tap down, I feather, the blade goes out at the same speed. Once my outside arm is nice and long and loose, it's not locked, but it's nice and long and loose and it's in a good position with level shoulders, then and only then I'm balancing the oar on the swivel so it stays at that fist width above the sax board. I let the hands flow. I'm not throwing them away. I'm not spinning them out. I'm just letting them flow out. It's a flowing movement. So you're feeling for the rhythm. Being quick and smooth with the hands is not the same as rushing them. It's about control. And one of the things that you can do this is do up twos and get used to how quickly. If you can do up twos at half slide rowing in, in the high 30s and 40s, then when you come down to your paddle, you will be amazed how much time you have and how, you could, how much time you have to feel what's happening with the oar. So when, the, when my uh, arms are straight, nice and long and loose, my elbow's not locked out. I then hinge forward from the hips. I've got that idea about pressing the small of my back towards my belly button. I bring the weight slightly onto the front of the seat. This is what traditionally might be called the rockover. I'm moving from an 11 o'clock to a one o'clock position or maybe a half 11 to a half 12 position, depending upon how far you're being taught or asked to sit back at the end of your stroke. and but it's just that feeling of moving the weight and letting the boat come towards you. The boat will naturally feel like it's coming towards you. Once your hands are away and your body is rocked over, your knees will be the next thing to naturally rise. You blend those movements but you always recover in the right order. Do drills for this, so it's hands, body, slide. Your hands move the quickest of all of those elements. Your body is slower than your hands, you come forward, and then the slide is the slowest element of all. The boat speed is highest just after the blades come out. Okay, so what you're wanting to do is to let it run and by one of the ways you can do that is not interfering with it on your recovery. So let it run and keep the run that you've just generated by working on being really smooth in your recovery, keeping the blades clear of the water, not chucking the weight back down the way that you just came, keeping the pressure on the foot plate. Okay, so the kind of stroke that you end up rowing depends upon how you recover, swing and slide. Because if you lurch into front stops after all that effort, the boat's going to be going back down the river or it's going to be going to one side or the other and then the next stroke's going to be a labour. But if you've done everything right and you've let it go and the boat is nicely set and you let the hands go and you hinge from the hips and you push the small of the back and you keep that position as the knees break and you come forward, the hands raised to the catch or Ben's kidneys in my case, which is my mental visual, and before you know it, you're nicely compressed down and poised, you're in a good position, and you take the next stroke. So don't exaggerate the recovery, but keep the hands away and body over movements lively. Don't be sitting back and sagging and heaving at the blade and heaving your thing for. Keep it lively and light, okay? Use the um, lower rating pieces that you do 
to that extra time that you have, use it to try and get a loose lazy float or a loose lazy recovery. I'm using different words for the same thing, which is one of Keb's secrets at Agecroft. He'd tell you the same thing a million times in different ways until he found the one that registered with you, okay? This is why I talk about sitting down with the crew, sitting down with the squad, sitting down with the coach and getting on the same page about what the calls mean and what the definitions are and what the concepts are. And stay on your feet. I talked in the earlier episodes about, uh, you know, constant pressure on the footplate. There is a lot of weight driving through the footplate once you've hooked in at the catch, but even as you release, you should be able to feel on the footplate. And I think I talked about at Agecroft, we used to do at least one of our 6Ks or 7Ks in an 18K or 21K on the rowing machine with feet out. And you could really see at the back of the stroke, people who could keep a good constant contact with their footplate and if people's heels are coming up or their toes are coming up or they're just losing it at the back and they're having to use the body to pull themselves back up, it's because they're not maintaining that pressure with the footplate. So let's summarize the basics of the stroke and then let's talk about some ideas around watermanship, rigging, gearing and fads and fashions, okay? So the summary, sit tall, head up, chest up, hold the handle in your fingers, stay loose, it's not a death grip, okay? The best way to deal with rough water is actually not to grip the oar harder, but it's to just let it go and just be relaxed with it, okay? And just work with it. Press out against the pin, so you have that lateral pressure, you have the collar and the gate nice and snug together. Hands go away, you're swinging from your hips, you're trying to swing straight, trying to stay on the center line. As Maddie and Lucy used to yell at all of us, but especially Ben, control that sack of potatoes. Float into it, you are loose, you are balanced, you are relaxed, you are poised, you are riding the boat, okay? Um, feel, feel, feel for that first turn of the wheel, wheel, wheel. So you, you should be in control of the slide. The slide shouldn't be controlling you and throwing you forward. Fast light hands at the catch, okay? It doesn't have to be a big outside arm and a big chop in and like, poof, like a, like a trying to split a log. It's, it's, a, it's the hands raise as you come forward and you're poised and you're poised and the poised and the hands are coming up. And by the time you're on your feet and you're ready to drive back, the blade's already in the water, okay? Control the depth of the blade all the way through. Use the warm-up, use the pairs rowing, use the fours rowing, use the rolling sixes to work on the element of your technique. Take visual cue markers about when the handle is here, the blade is here. When the handle is here, the blade is here. When the handle is here, the blade is here. What does that look like all the way through? This is where I need to have it in relation to everything else in the boat and my oar is at the right height. Sit back hard, row it through hard, okay? You're using the legs to generate the explosive power that creates momentum, which feeds into the body weight, which naturally comes in once the legs start to come down. You're using the leg drive and the body weight to drive against the pin, and you're using the draw to continue the acceleration all the way through. Extraction, lift it out as fast and clean as you caught it. Little movement with the outside hand, hinge from the elbow, and just pop it out, okay? Fast and clean, let that boat run. Enjoy that speed you've just generated and let it run out 
and let the hands flow away. Let everything flow back over. The hands come away, the body hinges, the slide, and you're riding the run. You're letting the boat come towards you. You're riding the run, and you're maintaining that pressure, that contact with the foot plate. Now, Pete would say there's only one way to row a blade well, because an oar moves a boat by putting pressure against the pin. More pressure in the water means more acceleration, and so a higher boat speed at the finish. Any style that doesn't go for full pressure throughout the stroke from catch to finish is less efficient, because you're having to build to grip the water, Pete used the analogy of when you're hammering a nail into a wall, you don't try and push it in with the hammer, you hit it in, you bang it in, and it's that explosive drive. Our bodies move a certain way when we're moving a heavy weight. We're not stevedores. We're, he liked the idea of the springing hit and the leg drive, the explosiveness of the leg drive then feeding into the body weight momentum that you can generate to put the pressure against the pin. The spring was to overcome the resistance quickly, to pick the boat up quickly without interfering with its run. It's not hauling it. It's not that kind of big, hard, harder, harder, sweeping around and through to the finish. It's a springing hit with excellent blade control um, to move the boat. The most important thing is whatever style you decide to row, and at the moment in Britain, I think a lot of people are pretty much GB orthodox. A lot of the variations between clubs and regions which used to exist in the 70s, 80s and 90s have kind of been ironed out. The most important thing you can do in a boat is all do the same things together. So let's talk about some ideas of watermanship. Watermanship is the ability to handle a boat skillfully in different water and wind conditions. Rowing a blade well is the key. That I come back to this idea of rowing the blade because the blade is setting up everything else that's happening in the boat. And as we talked about in the previous two sections, there are a lot of things tied in with that. Control of body weight, control of posture, control of hands, control of hand heights, ratios, rhythms. Rowing in a piece or an outing or a race, it's about using strength and energy efficiently. We only have so many calories to burn in a given day. We only have so much in us at any given point in time. And it's about working with the boat rather than fighting it. There's some of the elements of watermanship. So let's talk about the idea of contrast. So at any pressure or rating, the idea is to apply the power fast and rest as long as possible between the strokes. Time on the slide should be at least twice the time in the water. If you have a musical background, and you know, thanks to the wonders of my family, I do have a fairly musical background. I always think of the rowing stroke, whatever the rate, it's in waltz time. So one in the water is two on the recovery and slide. So it's one, two, three, one, two, three and that never changes all the way through the stroke whether you're doing rate 18 or you're doing rate 42 the ratio doesn't change the speed that the ratio moves around that changes because you're rating higher but the actual ratio doesn't change 
And that might be a good concept for you to have in your head is this idea of one in the water, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. If you're scrambling up the slide to try and catch the next, you know, take the next catch and keep the boat moving, then the rhythm is wrong. So that, you know, let's, let's look at that rhythm. Let's look at the contrast. We want the work in the water and enjoy the recovery, work in the water and enjoy the recovery. Feel. For all of the technical ideas that I've outlined in this series, rowing is a feel sport. If you're listening to this, you've all had the experience of in a, being in a boat that is moving well whether that is in, on a difficult day when it's blustery and the water's bouncy or whether it's mill pond smooth and you're cutting through the water as though you're shearing through silk with a knife. Once you've felt what good rowing feels like, and obviously anyone who's ever been in a boat with me has never felt that, but once you've felt that, what you're looking to do are repeat the things that give you that feeling again. Because we row because we love the feeling of moving a boat through the water. So work on the technical stuff always have technical ideas in mind when you go out dennis used to say always go on the water with a purpose and that it's not just the work and the mileage it's some element of technique that you want to groove and make better but once you're there you're looking you're feeling for the most easy and efficient way to move the boat at any rate The boat knows what it's doing, that's what it's designed to do. You have to get in tune with it and work with it to sensitively pick it up and release it smoothly. Eric Murray talked about, you know, they went flat speed from the start of their races all the way through to the finish. People would charge off the start and they'd be down by two or three lengths and they'd just have confidence that their speed would take them through. And he said, once we got up to speed off the start, we just held it for the next 1700 meters and the, it was all about not letting the boat slow down, just keep tapping it along. We've got it up to speed, now we're, we're gonna get out of the way of the boat and just keep doing what it needs to keep it moving through the water. As well as feel, feel for the rhythm. Feel for the, the rhythm that the boat is, is, is giving you, the feedback that it's giving you. So look to develop a rhythm in your own movements. Look to sequence the hands, where you're drawing to, where you're tapping to, where the hands are flowing back out to, how you're hinging from the hips. I'm slightly anal and obsessive in this way, but when I was at Agecroft and I did ergs, there was a, a corner of the boathouse that had mirrors that went kind of into one corner and out of the other, and there were four ergs there. And I always chose an erg near the mirror. And because Dennis wanted me to work on certain things like my, my draw height and my tap down, I would literally put pieces of masking tape showing on the mirror, showing where my catch had to be, where my hands had to raise to at, at the catch, where they needed to be on the leg drive, where they needed to be on the body opening, on the draw through, where I'm drawing through to and where I'm tapping to. And I would you know, do 18 and 21K looking at those visual cues and tr training my body to, to do the right things. In the crew, you blend with the others. And I say it a lot at Tyne United that eights take time to blend and 
it's true. I ended up rowing at Agecroft with um, Lewin and Ben and Ali and Mark and everyone else for the best part of three or four years. And we were always in the same squad and usually in the same boat. And there were always things to work on. Um, and that's the reality of it because in a small boat like a quad or a four, you own much more of the shell. So you have much more input as to how it responds. You can change things quite dramatically. You can change speeds quite dramatically just by your application. In an eight, it gets up to speed very quickly, but the trick is blending it so that once you get up to speed, it stays at the highest speed possible for as long as, as, long as possible. And when you have eight different individuals with their idiosyncrasies and maybe different levels of fitness or flexibility or their different, their different approaches to the catch or their different approaches to the leg drive, it's the blend that's actually the thing. But when it clicks, when a crew clicks, it is amazing how easy it is to row very hard for very long distances at low, medium and high rates and have it feel easy and lazy and loose because the power is all in the water and you've all blended you know Ali Ali's on stroke side but he leans to bow side but that's okay because Sean's behind him and he blends with Ali in that way and Ben's in front of me and he has this weird thing where he goes around the outside of his knees to take the catch rather than through them but that's okay because I work well with him and that those two units blend and that as you work back through the boat the units blend and then the larger units blend and relax when you're on the water relax about things um, as the technique and blade work improve loosen the movements look for tension in the outing look for tension in your body tension in the face I'm, you know we all have what I would like to call the rowing face when we are signaling to the coach in the launch how hard we're working because we go oh you know oh, like it's a really bad poo that won't come out lose that good exercise get everyone out on the water get warmed up have them grab the oar as hard as they can tense the upper body pull the most horrible face they can really grab the oar as though they're trying to strangle it and then let go and take a breath and feel all of that tension go okay that's the contrast hanging on for grim death doesn't help anyone what you want to do is not go floppy or not lose control. You want to be relaxed and supple, okay? Relaxed and supple means an accurate and powerful stroke because you're not tense and diving in. You've got loads of time. You're very aware of what you're doing. So boat speed. Let's look at boat speed with the idea of watermanship. So for a given amount of power, a boat travels fastest over the distance if its speed is constant. The aim of good technique is to pick up the boat and release the boat as smoothly as possible without any speed fluctuations. The variables that affect that, I mean obviously the fitness of the crew and all of those kind of things, but power is the first one. So let's talk a bit about power. Your boat speed from catch to finish is the distance you travel divided by the time it takes, which is S equals D over T, okay? But the distance is fixed by the oar length in the water and the arc that you row it through. So if you have good length, and a good length is the most efficient length that you can row, it's not the longest length you can row, it's the most efficient length that you can row, 
The only way to increase the stroke speed is by reducing the time in the water, which means rowing a more powerful and therefore faster stroke. Remember we talked about the blade is, a, is it's not a fixed point, but we think of it as a fixed point in the water and we're using the legs, body and draw to lever against the pin. And that is the pressure on the pin is what's creating the boat speed. The boat can only go as fast as the blades rotate. Length. So I'm going to talk a little bit about rigging, not a huge amount because if Duncan ever hears this he'll take me to one side at Tyne and beat me up. But there's a mechanical limit to how long a stroke can be and still be efficient. As far as your body is concerned though, that's a good starting point. There is literally no point in trying to reach or compress beyond your strong position. We talked about, you know, there was an idea that if length is good, more length must be better. Yes, but if you're dipping into the work to get more reach and you're compressed to the point where your, your leg drive has to come from a negative angle before it reaches a positive angle, then that extra length does nothing because you're working from a weak position. You end up rowing a weaker stroke, you're wasting time and effort and you're injuring yourself. You're looking for efficiency you're looking for the most efficient arc that you can row and the best gearing that you can row powerfully and comfortably. And that takes a bit of experimentation. Rating. Um, we used to race head races at 36 to 38 at, at, at Agecroft. And we just had that in mind as a target that that's what we needed to be hitting in terms of the rate but that often didn't take into account what was happening in terms of the water or the, or the wind against us or the efficiency of the stroke. In training, play with the rate. Look at raising the rate steadily. Look at always keeping or improving the quality. Any rating gain, like, you know, say you've been plodding along in a master's boat at 26 and you suddenly jump up to 32, but any rating gain that means that you're losing length or power isn't a gain. If the technique falls off, you've got to drop the rating, go back to the fundamentals and build it back up. The key about higher ratings is you do the work at lower ratings so that when you move up through that, because you have the time to focus on technique and technical issues, and then as you work up to the higher ratings and you're at 38, 42, whatever, you, you don't have time to think about where your blade is in the middle of the stroke. You should have been doing that at rate 18. As racing approaches, as you're aiming for a race, in training, find the top rate you can maintain for the distance. There's no point going off the start at 46 and being at the finish at 18. Usually, good rule of thumb in any class of rowing from junior through to masters, you should be aiming for somewhere in the mid 30s. It's also, it's really good to just blow the doors off it sometimes and go for the highest rating you can. Just go for it, just wind it till the doors fall off and then do it again and have some fun and feel how, fa how, how fast you can get it while maintaining the technique. Because if you've done some pieces at rate 45, some 300s or some minutes or something, and then you go back down to 36 for a K or 2K, 36 feels easy, you've got so much more time. You've taken 10 strokes out, out of the equation and those 10 strokes, all that time goes into the strokes that you're now doing.
pacing a race or race pace um, you know the rule of thumb is you take the the season's best erg scores and the personal best erg scores of the eight rowers in your eight and you add them all up and then you divide them and that gives you the average time over a certain distance of course it's not as easy as that rowing rowing doesn't work like that ergs don't float despite Lewin's best efforts to make them do so think of race pace as your lowest speed during the race so Lucy always used to say who was our wonderful Cox and Maddie and Dennis there's no point over a 6k head race saving it for the end if you if you have to save it for the end it means you haven't trained hard enough and you're not fit enough she always said go off hard because by the time you get to the end it's going to hurt anyway so let's go off hard let's let's find our pace early let's go for it and then we'll just trust in the training trust in the fitness it's going to hurt so you might as well accept that and get into it it's most efficient to row the, the whole race at what will be your lowest speed in the race. There's no point going off fast and then dipping down and then having a little burst and then a little level bit and then you drop down again and then you peak a bit. It doesn't work. Efficiency is the fastest speed you can maintain from A to B. Okay. Um, tactical racing like sprinting at the start is less efficient than pacing but there are plenty of people who've won very minor pots and very prestigious pots just by blasting off the star and dispiriting the crew behind them. Hello Green Lake. If you can increase your speed a massive amount, especially in an eight, you weren't going fast enough anyway. It's as simple as that. It's different in, in quads and fours and pairs. You can affect boat speed uh, a lot more um, because you own more of the shell. But in an eight, if you're chugging along at 205 and you suddenly manage to turn in a 150, for the last 500 of a head race, you weren't going fast enough for the rest of the race. So rigging, I'm going to talk briefly about rigging because it's important, but also I'm going to talk briefly about it because I wouldn't claim any sort of massive expertise in it. So the best way to think about rigging for me is that the rigging of the boat affects the kind of stroke you can row. You need to be comfortable in your boat, and I'm not talking about getting bitten by sliders or the end of the end of the um, footwell or anything like that. I mean, the blade has to work in the most efficient way. So, most boatmen will set boats up for the club in the most uh, efficient, basic way that everyone can use them. If you're the sort of club where people are going for things like Henley or you know top 30 at head of the river or top 10 at head of the river or whatever else and you're in that kind of echelon your boatman and your coach will probably set up whatever boat you use in the most efficient way that they think for you um, tinkering with your setup will not solve your basic technical problems so before you start throwing the foot plate back and forward and messing with the sliders sort out the way that you row first because your boatman will have set the boat up to work before you start fucking with it. If you do change things and we have the example of Drew Jin um, taking a hacksaw to his pair and moving everything back 15 centimeters to get the feel that he wanted at rate 36 for, for winning things, um, experiment intelligently but work within the principles of, of rigging. So. 
Rigging, what are we talking about with an oar? We're talking about an efficient arc of rowing. So let's assume that the oar sweeps through the arc of a circle that is centered on the pin. So the force of the pin is at right angles to the boat. So the oar is most efficient when it's 90 degrees to the boat. It's less efficient the further it gets away from the 90 degrees, which is why the more length good idea is nonsense, because at the catch it means that you are pushing the boat sideways at the catch, and then as you come round to the finish on a long stroke, you're again pushing the boat sideways. So the arc shouldn't be too long for mechanical reasons in the boat, and also the physical reasons we've identified about not getting into a weak position to take the stroke. The less you twist around at the catch, and I'm not talking about leaning in or dipping in or anything like that, the more comfortable and powerful the stroke you should be. It's level shoulders. Any movement comes from the hips. We are hinging from the hips. The inboard arc of the handle shouldn't be too large for physical reasons. So from experience, and this is because going back to Harry Clasper, there's a lot of work and a lot of data available upon how rowing boats move with outboard riggers. The most efficient arc is 75 degrees to 80 degrees. It grips at about 45 degrees in front of the right angle, which is the pin, and finishes at about 30 to 35 degrees behind it. Don't waste time and energy looking for a wider arc. A longer stroke is not gonna give you more speed, okay? If you look at, and I've mentioned this before, uh, the GB Men's Four in the 2012 Olympic Coxless Fours final, even though they're GB athletes, they were rowing a very Spracklin-esque style in as much as their, their arc was not massively long, it was just incredibly efficient. It was long because they're all big, long, loose guys, but it wasn't the kind of big, heaving sweep through. If you look at what they're doing, it's efficient, it's an efficient arc all the way through. The overlap on the handle should be about 30 to 32 centimeters, and this applies whatever size the boat and however long the oar. If the inboard is too long, you'll end up leaning away from the pin in the middle of the stroke. If it's too short, the handle will come in across the body at the finish, so you won't have that strong linkage with the outside arm that allows the back muscles to keep the acceleration coming on the draw. Given that blade angles and overlap are more or less fixed, your spread or TD has to be pretty much constant, whichever boat you're in. If you move the pin in much outwards, you're changing the rowing arc. You may have to do this if you're in a small club and you only have all eight oars to use in pairs, but it's not a great compromise. So when you're setting the boat up, what your boatman will, will do, will talk to the club captain and go, well, this is a, a boat for general use and it's a, it's a quad for heavyweight men. Um, and they'll take into account the average height of the, of the squad or the people, the pool of people that will use it because how tall they are depends upon how far they can move the handle comfortably but it'll be somewhere in the region of about 83 to 86 centimeters. People who are smaller might need less and people who are very tall might need a little bit more. For the boat to travel straight, and this is an interesting one because at, at, at time we've been talking about the way pairs move through the water and there's kind of a sinuous feel to them. The forces at the pin have to be symmetrical all through the arc. 
So to fine tune the crew, if you have a settled crew that's going for a Henley or a Head of the River or a Nat Champs or something serious, you might consider adjusting the spread for each individual. We know from talking to Terence Chipchase that there are a lot of international coaches who couldn't set their boat up because he's pretty hot on this subject and he used to um, umpire international regattas and he'd often take a sneaky look at the boat and even basic things like um, spreads were, it wasn't good. Um, but you can fine tune, it might help the shorter rowers because they won't have to overreach to reach the same arc as the taller rowers. Um, just giving them a little less spread and a little less output to compensate but another way of doing that is standardizing the stroke within the boat. So if it's set up at the back end, you make sure that everyone has their foot plate adjusted so that their, their seat is coming back to about an inch at, at the end of the sliders. And then standardizing the stroke at the front end by going, look, I know you can get six inches further, but at this, this piece of tape, I want your hands raised and I want you in. So you can standardize it without having to mess too much with the spread. Gearing. This is an interesting one. I always just basically used to leave it to James Lewis and Dennis. Uh, it changed from winter to summer because the distances that you raced were shorter and more brutal and probably higher rating. But basically the bigger the ratio between the outboard and the inboard length of the oar, the heavier or harder the gearing is. The outboard length determines the length of the outboard arc. A longer outboard means a longer stroke, or what used to be called a longer stride to the stroke. Heavier gearing will make you faster over the distance, but only if you can maintain the power, length and rating. If it, it should feel firm, it shouldn't be putting your back in danger of snapping. If you can't maintain power, length and rating at the gearing that's in for a given distance, you might want to look at the gearing again. The contrast, which we talked about before, between the drive and the float, the one of the drive and the two, three of the recovery, should be clear even at race pace. If the ratio ever gets one-to-one -one and you're, you're, not, you, you're not having that nice feeling of running even at 35, 36, 38, and the rowing starts to feel and look laboured, lighten the gearing by reducing the outboard for a while. Pete always used to tell us that good rowing looks lazy and because we used to be dying in most of the sessions we used to think that he was mad but actually if you look even at a Redgrave and Pinson in the pair in Barcelona they're moving incredibly rapidly they're incredibly dynamic in the boat. Redgrave moves he doesn't it's not just that he moves the boat quickly he moves incredibly quickly in the boat for a big man but it looks like they have loads of time even though they're tapping it along at a really high rate okay so good rowing looks lazy from the outside it looks like there's loads of time and actually you have those rare moments in the boat where it feels exactly the same when we did Rutherford Head for the first time with Agecroft which if you ask anyone who was in that boat they'll say it's one of the all-time top three rows ever we did the entire Rutherford course from Scotswood Bridge down to Blackjack at um, rate 38, settling from 46 off the start. And it never dropped below 38, but I, I just felt sitting behind Ben at seven, his rhythm was so good, I just followed him and I could feel the rest of the boat and it just felt like the boat was running for miles 
and I had so much time, you know, I could spot familiar landmarks from my childhood as we whizzed past them. Now, there are some other things that I can talk about here. I can talk about um, pitches, I can talk about swivel heights, about uh, the stretcher, about keeping the feet low in the boat on the stretcher, not raising the, the, the foot height up, about the rake angle of the stretcher, about the splay of the feet and about blade angles. And, but if your boatman is any good, and most boatmen are or they don't get the job, they've probably already done that for you and you'd be far better having a chat with them to talk about various things. Essentially, boats are set up along the mean. So they're set up so that everyone can get in them and use them. If you get to a stage where you're getting pretty serious about things and, and going for races, you can talk about setup with your boatman and you can experiment with it. I just wanted to close this, not about um, adding any further observations about coaching because as I have said at the start of this, I consider myself super fortunate to have had Kev at Agecroft to start with, as generations of Agecroft rowers have had Kev, um, to put my foundations in place. I am incredibly fortunate to have had Dennis O'Neill to have built my rowing pyramid and Peter Holmes to put a finish on it and teach me how to row blade. And then I've been really lucky to work with Alan Bashford and with Dan Armstrong, who I think is a fantastic young coach. And I know that he's basically going to take me to one side at some point in the boathouse and give me a dead leg for being patronising enough to call him a young coach. But there you go. I'm not going to talk about coaching for technique other than to say that as a coach and as a crew, know what you want. You know, Dennis's thing, don't go on the water without a purpose. Know what you want from it. Um, the ideas that I've talked about, the, rowing is simple when it's done well. It feels incredibly easy, but it's there's obviously a lot of moving parts and I hope I've given some ideas that mean you can fine tune those moving parts and blend your boat better and get behind the idea of rowing a blade. Ergometer work, the rowing machine, which we all do, use it to teach the body movement. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to use it to teach, you know, hand heights in the way that I did when I was at Agecroft and I kind of self-coached myself to get everything in the right place. Don't just thrash at it, look for good technique, look for good body movement, look for consistent pace, look for all of those things, okay? That's the only thing that I'll say. And the last bit on coaching is that training is always technical work. You might be going out to do 21K, you might be Durham University boat squad and you're heading off to Newcastle and back, but all of those miles are still technical miles even when you're grinding out the UT stuff. Mileage makes champions, but miles of bad rowing just makes bad habits. Every stroke of every outing counts. And I'll go back to what I said, I think, in part two, which is when you are warming up and the boat is stable, it is being sat for you, work on elements of your technique. Identify the things that need fixing. Pete used to say, and it was one of his, you know, everything I say about rowing is something I've learned from someone else. But Pete used to say, don't just be rowers, be thinking rowers. Think about what you're doing. And then if you think about what you're doing, and you apply that to your work, eventually you'll just be able to feel it. And it's when you can feel it is when the magic happens and you get great outings.
Okay, so that's all I'm gonna say about coaching. Apart from one more thing, the thinking rower thing. Get people to coach themselves. Get people to take ownership. Make them conscious and self-critical. Use video footage, identify things. You can do it yourself. If you know something's wrong, don't wait for your coach to tell you. Fix it. That started with Kev. You know, if you're doing something wrong, if something's wrong in the boat, fix it. It's not up to me to do it. That, this is me being Kev, by the way. Fads and fashions. A lot of what I've talked about is Dennis. A lot of what I've talked about is Pete, with a little sprinkling of Kev and Dan and other people that I've met along the way. Rowing fashions are like anything else. They come and go. They're based on, you know, St. Paul's are doing well. It must be the pause. Let's all sit at the back. Or they've just got eight fantastic athletes who've been grooved by a school system and a school rowing club that's been around for decades and really knows what it's doing. Might not be the pause. Don't copy a crew that just because they win. Look at what they're doing. It might not just be the style of rowing. They might have an exceptional crop of athletes. They might have an exceptional coach. They might have got all of the things in place and they might have been building to that point for years. Okay. Some basic fads. Length is good, therefore more length is better. Absolute bollocks, you know that by now. Oh, get your bums to your heels. No, leg work is good, therefore more leg work is better. Over compression means a soft catch and a weaker stroke because you're starting from a negative position. It's the same with overreaching. We talked about efficiency of arc. Length is good, therefore more length is better. But if you're curling and twisting your back and you're compressing into a weak position, that length is doing nothing. All you're doing is you're pushing against the side of the boat until it comes into its point of efficiency. So why waste that? Why not just row the efficient arc and row more strokes? The time that you waste getting more length at the front and back of the stroke, you could fit more strokes in. Steep catch angle. Length is good, therefore a wider arc is better. Um, it's a waste of time to go beyond the mechanical and physical limits that the boat can manage and that the crew can manage, okay? A quick catch gives you all the blade lift you need for a start and you want to look at efficient, efficient, efficient arcs all through the boat and blending those efficient arcs. Build up pressure to peak at the most efficient point. We've identified that when the, the oar is at 90 degrees to the pin, it is at its strongest point. The water is going past so quickly, even at 18 strokes a minute, that if you're going hard, harder, hardest, by the time you've got hold of it, you're at the end of the stroke. Got to get hold of it. Go for constant pressure all the way through. It doesn't have to be a Pete Holmes maximum explosion, but a constant pressure all the way through because you need the leg drive to create the momentum with the weight that the body then opens against the pin and the draw then continues through to the finish. Horizontal drive phase. This is a favorite of mine. The blade is horizontal in the water and in terms of this, in, in the sense that if your handle heights are correct, the blade will sit where it is supposed to sit. Sitting low in the boat makes you weaker. What you want to do is you want to keep the work low. You want to be using the legs to then feed in the body. Sit up, keep the lower back in a strong position because that creates the linkage between the, the handle of the oar, the blade in the water, the pressure on the pin, and the movement of the legs, okay? Uneven drive. 
we all do this to some extent. If we row on bow side or stroke side, we, we might drive, I'm a bow sider, we might drive harder with the left leg because we're closer to the work. Um, it's unnatural, it makes the catch weaker. If your legs are doing the I'm giving birth thing at the catch, you need to bring the knees in. You need to be in a strong position. You're not levering the body up through, up through so the legs can then come on, okay? So it's constant even pressure on the foot plate. Everything is even. I've mentioned this one before. Tipping or dipping it into the work. That means leaning sideways or dipping down to get more length at the catch. Keeping, keeping the outside shoulder higher, so you're dipping in, means that you can't row as hard. You want to be turning into the rigger, but you don't want to be falling into the rigger. I tend to do it in a sweep boat for the extra length. I'm only six foot three, I'm not a big rower, but I've, I think at Tyne United it's generally felt that I have a fairly long stroke because I had Dennis yelling at me for 10 years going longer, longer, longer. Um, but I now focus on not reaching for the extra length and going back to what Pete taught me, which is the efficiency of the arc. If the arc is efficient, then the movement of the boat is efficient. Knees together. Hello, Ben, it's been a while. It's puzzling. If you're picking something up heavy from the floor, you very rarely do it with your knees together, okay? Ben managed to get away with it because he was just godlike in a boat. So there's some of the fads and fashions to avoid. This has been Broken Oars talking about technique, and I'm sure that Lewin will shortly be along to tell you about all of the ways that I am completely and utterly wrong. Thank you for listening. If you've got any thoughts or ideas, or you want to say, Jackson, you don't know what you're talking about, or good God, no wonder you never won much. I did actually win quite a lot, but when I left Sheffield, everything I owned stayed in Sheffield, including my pots and medals. So I, I can't kind of festoon them on the wall behind me in the same way that Mark Lewis does. Um, but I only won a lot because I was very, very lucky in being in a very, very good crew and they carried me down the river. And that's not just self-deprecation. I think a lot of life is luck and a lot of the, the things that we do, it's opportunity and hard work and all of those things, but you've got to be in the right place at the right time. And I was really lucky to be at Agecroft when Lewin and Ben and Chapman and Matt and Mark and Justin were and Dennis and Kev and I think I'm really lucky to be at Tiny United now. So there. Right. Bye for now. See you all soon.